Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Community Church. If this is your first time, we extend a special welcome to you. My name is Brad. I am the teaching elder here at Grace. And I have to acknowledge that either there are a number of victims of the clock this morning or there are more Carolina fans than I knew in this place. I, I didn't... I'm one of them. Uh, in, in case you didn't know... Uh, <coughs> I didn't see the game, but I know the refs cheated. Uh, I know they did. So uh, it's just a given. Um, well, uh, you will want to know. Well, actually, you should already know. We had a unanimous vote to bring Ricky and April Lee here. And actually, let me change that. I'm very careful about the language. It's an affirmation um, of the leadership that the elders sense from the Lord and the uh, members say, yes, we affirm that. And if you say no, then we say, okay, we let's go back to the Lord and see what happened. Where did we get that wrong? But So we will be welcoming them in the near future, and I think we're going to be blessed. I have heard several times since... Um, we started talking with Ricky. I, I don't think you guys know exactly who you're getting. The Lord has used them to minister greatly in Plumtree, North Carolina. And if you can minister in Plumtree, you know. Um, isn't it uh, interesting that Keisha sings the song and then has to yet again go back and fill in for someone? How many, Scott, has she been in any service this year all the way through? Uh, it's the first week of March. The next couple of weeks, um, we're, we're, we're going to be seeing the value that Jesus placed on children in a day when children were not valued. Look, our problem is children are almost worshipped in our day. Um, and no wonder people want to you know, get away from them when they can, if they're, if they're worshipped like that. But what a, what a privilege we have. And I'm going to be challenging those of you who don't have kids anymore, you know, to, to, to be willing to serve some. If, if a lot of people will serve, then we won't be serving that frequently and that often. So, like I say, I, I say I'm going to be challenging. Actually, I think Jesus is going to challenge us to value the children in our midst at a very high level. Well, um, this past summer, Allison and I were blessed to go to New Zealand. Only it was winter in New Zealand. Uh, we were in Queenstown for about four days. Um, and, and Queenstown is near the southern end uh, of the South Island, which is way down there, not you know, too far from the Antarctic. And it was cold uh, while we were there. It's the first time that I have uh, worn long johns for several days in a row. But man, I, I'm telling you, I, they were my friend when I was in, in, in New Zealand. It, it was cold. And, and we happened to be there during Winterfest uh, or Winter Festival, the Winter Festival. When we got there uh, on somewhere around June 21, the first day of summer here, the first day of winter, uh, people were pouring into Queenstown. And it was just a real festive atmosphere on the streets. And we were walking around at night, and I was taking some pictures. 
and whenever we would be able to get to wireless networks, I'd send some of those pictures out, put them on Facebook, which I don't do very often, but did that. And I sent them to my kids, and I said, as usual, we're 20 years older than anyone else out here having fun, you know, at night. Uh, it was only later that I realized I had lied. We were 30 years older than anyone else out there that night. But we were having a big time. It, and it was flat out cold. On Sunday morning, just before we went to Lake Tekapo, uh, up in the mountains where we were greeted by almost three feet of snow. Imagine that in, in June, early, late June, you're, you've got three feet of snow. But we, we, just, we wanted to go to church. We had been trying for a long time to find a, a church. We settled on St. Peter's Anglican Church in Queenstown. Actually, it's almost like uh, the church in this town is Anglican. You know, I actually heard somebody tell me that one time when I was young. I was in Ohio on a Sunday morning. I was driving. I got off the interstate, and I said, excuse me, could you tell me where a Baptist church is? I was a, you know, Baptist back in the day. And that shaped a lot of who, of who I am. But I said, it, it, it's, uh, it's, can you tell me where Baptist Town? The guy said, I, I think the church in this town is Methodist. And so I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll look around a little bit. Um, <clears throat> and there were several churches in that town, but that was his. And it felt like that in uh, St. Peter's Church in, in, in Queens. Town. It seemed like there was nothing else in town. Now, I don't know if you know of this, but in most of the world, uh, even when it's cold, they don't really heat churches. You know, you kind of go in and, and, and you're freezing. Next time, it's like about two degrees too warm or two degrees too cool in here. Think about Queenstown. We were freezing that day. But they were having a merry old time with tambourines and all kinds of stuff that... They were uh, doing that day. By the way, uh, this church was not a great church, as you're going to see, but just like any denomination, there are great Anglican churches, and there are not so great Anglican Anglican churches. Anglican theologians, especially from that part of the world down under, uh, inform your theology and the ways that you articulate what you believe probably more than you are aware so we were hoping for one of those kinds of churches, but it didn't turn out to be that way. On, on that beautiful June morning we, that we attended St. Peter's, we heard about Sir Edmund Hillary in the introduction to the message. And I mean, it was a long introduction, kind of like this one is becoming. Uh, do you know that name, Edmund Hillary? Anybody know that name? You know what he was famous for? First man to that we know of, along with his guide, to reach the summit at Mount Everest. Uh, Hillary was a Kiwi, so it's no, no surprise that the, the New Zealanders are very proud of him. And I'm not going to regale you with the stories of the difficulties of the climb, which is pretty fascinating when you, when you hear about it. Uh, but it's worth at least referencing his time at the summit with Terzing Norgay, who was a Nepalese uh, Sherpa guide, known simply as... Sherpas these days, in case you're planning on hiking the Himalayas and you don't want to be considered a rube, just say, hey, where's my Sherpa? You know, I need a Sherpa to help me get up this mountain. When Hillary and Norgay uh, reached the summit at just over 29,000 feet, he had spent two hours 
thawing out his shoes which had frozen, his boots which had frozen the night before, before he could go up that last little bit to the summit. And when he and Norgay got to the top of the mountain, they danced and jumped around like children, and they stopped to enjoy the view. Now, they did not enjoy the view very long. I mean, 15 minutes max was the long, longest time that they stayed there. But the good pastor at St. Peter's made much of the fact that they enjoyed the view. And he used this analogy for the text that we're going to read this morning. And in fact, he was convinced that that was the point of this text. This text that gives us the account of the transfiguration of Jesus. The point being, when we get to the top of life's mountains, we should stop and enjoy the view. Now, let's see if you agree with that interpretation of the Scripture. We're going to read the text together, Mark 9, verses 1 to 29, but we're just going to read the first 13 verses for this portion. So would you please stand as we read God's Word together? And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents or three tabernacles, three booths. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. (coughs) And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah must, does come first to restore all things. And how was it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him. Whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are often as confused as the disciples when we open your word. It is your word, your message to us. And our hearts long to know your truth and what you want us to know. We have the Holy Spirit and we have the resurrected Christ and the Spirit of God living within us. And we have teachers. Lord, I have had many good teachers as I have thought about this text this morning. We have one another 
to encourage and explain and exhort. And so may we hear from you. And as we do, may we believe. And as we believe, may we obey. Change us, make us more like Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, BC. One of the first things a preacher does when he's planning to preach from a particular text is to look for the big idea. What is the overarching theme of this? Did you get that the theme of this text was to stop and enjoy the view when you get to the top of the mountain? How hard would you have to work? How creative would you have to be to come up with the idea that it is intended to show us that we need to stop and enjoy the view at the top of the mountain? Listen, the service that we attended that morning seriously was more like a pagan festival welcoming winter than it was a church service, a church that had been commissioned to preach the gospel. And, and I thought, as, even as I was preparing to say that this morning, I know it's going to sound kind of harsh. I think it's light compared to what the Apostle Paul would have said. With what Jesus would have said to people who were preaching a false gospel, who worshipped the creation rather than the Creator. The minister in Queenstown was not the first to misunderstand what was going on when Jesus took three of his disciples up on the mountain. Now, this is most likely Mount Hermon. If you've been to Israel, it's in the north of Israel, and the Israeli <clears throat> Israel-Syria border runs ac- or runs across uh, close to the top of the mountain. That's in dispute, of course. Some of it's in the Golan Heights. I could see Mount Hermon when. When I was there back in the early 80s, Jim Acock has seen it many times. If you've been to Israel, very likely you have been able to see Mount Hermon. And it's a pretty high mountain. They were up there, all 10, 12,000 feet, somewhere like that, when the Lord began to speak to them. Now, Mark 9-1 is a segue from the last part of Mark 8, what he was talking about in Mark 8, down to what's going to happen here. He had just called the people to radical discipleship. Now, radical is a word that is used quite a bit today. I love David Platt. A lot of people misapply his understanding of radical. They think you have to be middle class um, white Americans with a fair amount of money so you can sell your house, move into a a smaller house and, and, and give a lot of money to, to different things in order to be a disciple. But listen, most of the people who respond to the gospel are not in any position to do anything but work six days a week, long hours a day. And they're mothers with small children without the kind of assistance that we have in our world today. Radical discipleship means that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life. And you treat one another with the love and respect that God calls us to do in his word. And so Jesus had called a a large multitude to radical discipleship. And he said, some of you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And we talked about this yesterday in our mission meeting 
uh, about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Well, has the kingdom of God already come or is it yet to come? Yes, that's the, the answer is both. It's already not yet. We live a great deal in that tension. And everything Jesus was doing was giving taste, giving an example of what it's going to be like when all is restored, when all is made right. And he's, and he's saying, it will be so glorious, you'll hardly be able to contain it. And some of you are going to get a taste of that. And then Mark says something very unusual. He says, after six days. Mark doesn't put a lot of time frames. He, he doesn't say, this happened and then two or three days later this happened. When he does, it's very meaningful. Uh, we'll come back to that in just a minute. Why that is so meaningful. Um, in fact, all three of the Gospels that, that talk about this Instant Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, this event, put a time frame on it. So the call to discipleship and Jesus talk of, about his death and resurrection and this event are all connected. Six days after the teaching, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him up on the mountain. While they were on the mountain, Jesus changed. Before their very eyes. Now Luke actually tells us that they were asleep. You know every time something big is about to happen. <clears throat> with Jesus. These three guys are sleeping. You know J- Peter, James and John. They're, <clears throat> they're sort of conked out. But when they woke up. Man did they wake up. Every time. You know every time. Something. And so Jesus <clears throat> has changed in, in, <clears throat> into a brilliant white Light before their eyes, or a white, a brilliant white before their eyes. And the transformation came not because God shone a light from heaven, but it came from within him. And it was so brilliant and so transformative that his clothes were turned whiter than anyone on earth could bleach them. This was God's glory being revealed in Jesus, or it was Jesus revealing to them that he was God. They know him as an incredible teacher, healer. They've even watched him raise people from the dead. But now they're seeing him as God himself. You've heard of the Shekinah glory of God. It's not, an old, it's not a Hebrew word that's used in the Old Testament, but it's a good word. It describes uh, the, the glory of God that we see in the cloud that was between them and the, the Israelites and the, and the Egyptians and led the Israelites and it was over the tabernacle and it filled the tabernacle in the temple when those houses were dedicated to the Lord. Well, on the mountain... The disciples were getting a glimpse of the power and the glory of the kingdom of God. But they didn't fully understand at that time what Moses and Elijah were talking about with Jesus. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? I'm not sure I know. I mean, I don't, you don't get the sense that there were any introductions, you know, Moses, Elijah, Peter, James, John, you don't, you, don't, you, know, you don't get any of that. But they understood that Moses and Elijah were talking 
with Jesus. Moses represented the law. Elijah was the forerunner of the Messiah according to Malachi 4. And even though that was not the last Old Testament book that was written, that's where it's it's, it found its place in the Old Testament canon. And so just about the last word about the Messiah was that Elijah would come before the Messiah. Peter spoke up because he didn't know what to say. You ever done that? You know, you don't know what to say. And so you go ahead and say something, and then you really wish that you had not um, said anything. I mean, Peter wanted to say something to capture the magnitude of the moment. And, and look, there are a lot of us like that. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, even if it's like, dude, oh, you know, it's just like, you got to say something. And so the first word out of Peter's mouth indicates he didn't get it. Rabbi, here's God, his clothes are whiter than anybody could bleach, it's just like light coming off of Jesus, and he says, my esteemed teacher, my great one, he should have stopped, but no, hey, I've got an idea. You know, these are three really important people here. Let's build three tabernacles. Let's three, build three booths to commemorate this occasion on which such three important people, three such important people in God's plan are here. I mean, can't you see Peter riding down a donkey later saying, Rabbi, I called him Rabbi. Yeah, hey, why don't we build three buildings? I'm like, stupid, you know, what an idiot. You know how you do. Oh, one of my favorite lines ever is in the movie Dan in real life, you know, when he's met this lady and he's riding down the road and he says, I'll call you to tell you that I'm not going to call you. Boy, that's brilliant, you know. So I, I can imagine this is Peter later. And I'm sure that conversation with himself would go on for quite a while. But in the moment... When he actually spoke those words, before he could even get them out of his mouth, the Lord interrupted him. And I am certain with a booming voice that I am unable to imitate in any way. I should have gotten one of you, you know, to be off with a microphone in the, in the side. In a booming voice we hear, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When they looked up, well, first of all, we're, we're, we're told in Luke that the disciples fell on their face. <clears throat> when they heard this voice that clearly said to them, Moses and Elijah are not in the same league at all. We're not talking about the same type of person. And when they looked up, they saw only Jesus. Let me ask you, do you think that the title for last week's sermon, Sean's sermon, Jesus is Better, would have worked today? Absolutely it would work. I mean, in fact, it would work most 
Sundays because that's the theme of all scripture. Jesus is better than anybody, anything. It was not clear to Peter when he uttered his infamous words, but it it was made clearer on the spot. You know, he, he said, oh, okay, I, I, there's something here that I'm missing. I know that. Look at what he wrote years later. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, For we were with him on the holy mountain. Here's what Peter got that the minister in Queenstown didn't get. The event recorded in Mark 9 is actual history. It wasn't an inspirational story that will help us think good thoughts and enjoy the view as we're allowed to walk merrily through life. It's not just inspiration. Peter wasn't asking his readers to put faith in faith. (laughs) And (coughs) so many people do that today. (coughs) How am I going to get through this? You just need to have faith. Look, Caleb will tell you that. Just need to have faith. Not, Not opposed to Caleb, just some of the junk that's on Caleb. It's not... I better stop. I'm, you know, let's pray. Let's go now from this place. <laughs> it really is. It's sad that so much, much of our Christian lives are lived on the front bookshelf of the Christian bookstores. It's not where Jesus is, even though his name is plastered all over it. There's so much more to him. Than just, you know, la 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 as we go through this life. Peter was asking his readers to believe in a real human being. Who was also 100% God. And who died for our sins and rose from the dead. So Peter got that. Here's what he got later that he didn't get at that moment. And we understand it now as well. Jesus is better. He's better than Moses and Elijah. He's better than the law. He's better than anyone who claims to be God or who claims to know God apart from Jesus. Here's the way Martin Luther said it. Did the law ever love me? Did the law ever sacrifice itself for me? Did the law ever die for me? On the contrary, it accuses me. It frightens me. It drives me crazy. When you're trying to get God to accept you on the basis of what you do, this is what the law does for you. Well, now, and of course, Martin Luther did. He literally almost went crazy recognizing I'm not good enough. We're much more sophisticated than he was. And so we say, well, okay, I'm not good as that guy, but I'm a lot better than, you know, these guys over here. 
And we're constantly making mental checks. I'm better than this. I'm better than that. But when we are face to face with the law, it will drive us. Somebody else saved me from the law, from sin and death unto eternal life. That somebody is the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Hence, Christ is no Moses, no tyrant, no lawgiver, but the giver of grace, the Savior, full of mercy. That's the gospel. And that's going to be the message in Mark from this point on. When the Father told Peter, James, and John, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. He is almost certainly telling them to listen to Jesus when He talks about the fact that I'm going to die. Remember what happened just recently. He told Peter, I'm going to die. And Peter said, No, 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 no. Lord, how dare you say such a thing? The Father is saying, listen, what he's telling you is truth. It's my plan. That's what Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were talking about, right? We're talking about his departure. Well, on the way down the mountain, Jesus told the disciples to keep what had happened to themselves. And, and, and again, it's because Jesus didn't want to create the wrong kind of kingdom momentum. He was not going to be the political Messiah that so many people wanted. Not yet. And he did not want to be distracted from his mission. Which was to go to Jerusalem and die on the cross. In Jerusalem, he would take upon himself the curse of the law, dying on a wretched cross to absorb the wrath of God that would have otherwise been directed toward my sin and toward me, rightly directed toward me. See, it's accurate to say God loves the sinner, but not the sin. But do not forget that the wrath of God is not only directed toward the sin, it's directed toward the sinner. And apart from Jesus, the wrath of God will be being satisfied for all eternity. Which is why it is so important for us to tell people. That there's a way to avoid that. And that's Jesus. He stood in the way of the wrath of God. And all who will believe, repent of their sin and believe are hidden behind him in the cross with him. The disciples had seen a glimpse of the glory of God's kingdom on the mountain. And now the religious leaders would do to Jesus what they had done to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, by the way, the prophesied Elijah who was to come. Jesus said, yep, he's already come. They've done with him as he will. And now they'll do the same to the Son of Man. Jesus, God in the flesh.